Welcome to our first weekday coronavirus edition of This Week in the CLE. This unprecedented story is one for the ages, and it's what we are talking about as we all try to get through it. So starting today, we're replacing our weekly Thursday episode of this podcast with 30-minute episodes each weekday. We'll discuss the questions we are receiving on our subtext messaging accounts, one for the coronavirus and another that offers up what we're talking about in the newsroom. You've been sending us no end of thoughtful comments and questions, which have turned into a couple of dozen stories so far. The conversation we're having on the text account is resonating. I'm your host, Cleveland.com editor Chris Quinn, and I'm joined by two editors who are overseeing a lot of the coverage, Jane Cahoon and Chris Warnowski, as well as State House reporter Andrew Tobias. Hello, all. Good hey morning. I'd ask how your weekends were, but with the stay-at-home order and the need to cover this story 24-7, I'm not sure we have what you'd consider weekends anymore. I hope that at least you got to take some time and focus elsewhere for a bit. My big weekend moment was when I pulled out my lawnmower after three years on mothballs, tuned it up, and had it start on the very first pull. Small pleasures. Okay, so (laughs) (laughs) I know, lame, I know, it's very lame. So as this format is new, and it will likely change, but let's begin by breaking our discussion into questions. And the first one came on my subtext account, and it's a great one. Ohio Governor Mike DeWine and Health Director Amy Acton have broken the state into eight zones and soon, maybe today, will show us their plan for hospitals in those zones. Some will be for the coronavirus. The others will be for the rest of things that send people to the hospital. So the question is, if I have a health concern and get sent to a hospital that is not in my insurance network, will my insurance cover it? Jane, our statehouse reporter, asked this question, not not Andrew, Laura Hancock, at the governor's briefing Saturday, and the answer was not fulfilling. Yeah, it was really kind of strange. They really almost seemed taken aback by this question, and they proceeded to give a non-responsive answer saying, oh, you know, we're not going to turn anybody away for treatment. This is not, you know, rest assured, nobody will be turned away and, you know, we'll figure things out on the back end and we have to give this more research or whatever. Well, the Um, first response was from Acton, who was like, hey, that's a great question. I'll have to get back (laughs) to you on that. And I was thinking, what do you mean it's a great question? This is something you would think you'd have been on top of. And then Houston, you're right. He, He basically answered a question that was had nothing to do with what was asked, which is no hospital will turn a sick person away. And if they do, We'll we'll fix it. I'm a little bit surprised, though, if if they're this far down the road on 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 figuring out which hospitals will handle which people that they never thought about in network, out of network stuff. We've all dealt with in network, out of network stuff. It's a nightmare as it is. Right. (laughs) Yeah. You got to believe that this the the result of this is going to be a lot of people having all kinds of difficulties. Uh, with their insurance companies and their coverage. Well, think about it. Say, d- d- let's just use an example, right? I'm in the UH system and say in in our area, Metro Health becomes the coronavirus hospital. Probably not because they don't have enough respirators, but just say for the for the for this exercise. So Metro Health has absolutely no information about me. I show up to be treated for coronavirus. Are they going to have a team of people collect all of my data? so that they can properly bill me and 
And how does that work with social distancing and things? I just, I was, I just, I'm surprised that this wasn't kind of fully thought out before they started talking about it. To be fair, though, it's, I mean, even in a non-coronavirus environment, getting a straight answer about insurance and healthcare costs is next to impossible. Like, so, you know, I, 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 you know, and, and I'm not to make excuses for, you know, their lack of preparation on this issue because they should obviously be anticipating things like this becoming a, a question of, of residents of Ohio. Um, but our insurance system is not the easiest to navigate under regular circumstances. So it's, it's, it's stunning in one way, but also not surprising in the least in the other. Well, the other thing is, is it seems like we're hearing from some people on this, the insurance companies aren't really communicating. They're not, I, I would think that if I'm an insurer and I have lots of people that could be going into this, this snake pit that I'd want people to know, Hey, we got you. We're, you know, if, if you have, if you get the coronavirus, we got you covered. Here's the hotline to call. But I've heard from some people saying that while they've heard from just about every company under the sun saying, here's our COVID-19 response, They've heard nothing from their insurance companies, like Medical Mutual, for instance. So that's a little bit surprising, right? I mean, it's surprising to know that the Dollar Shave Club has a better uh, response (laughs) than most. So, yeah, I mean, it it is kind of, I mean, to hear that and to to sort of hear what people's experiences have been thus far, thus far has been kind of disappointing. All right, great line. Okay, uh, next conversation. Uh, Andrew, you uh, you spent some time with uh, at the governor's briefing yesterday. This has been an interesting weekend for the DeWine President Donald Trump relationship. Uh, DeWine started the day with a angry attack on the federal government, not Trump by name, for its handling of an issue that was important to him. But by the end of the day, it seemed like peace was restored. So take us through that a little bit. Yeah. And actually, I woke up on Sunday thinking it might be a slow day and I ended up filing a story at 1030 last night. So it's just kind of the the era that we're in right now. But And it kind of matched up with the story you filed at 1030 in the morning. So it worked out. Right. Yeah. It was, it was a good bookend in the day. But uh, essentially, um, uh, so Governor DeWine said he actually went to bed on Saturday night thinking that the situation was resolved, which is that the Ohio officials and a research uh, nonprofit in Columbus called Battelle had been working to get approval for a new technology that Battelle developed. It is basically like a big container where you load in uh, respirator masks inside and they uh, spray them with uh, peroxide solution and water or something like that. It basically allows them to sanitize these masks where there's this massive shortage going on right now where you have healthcare workers who need these things to protect themselves and they're not available. And this is an issue uh, nationwide and there's a lot of reasons for that. And so, uh, like I said, the governor thought that the FDA was on the brink of approving it. Battelle had basically already started shipping one of these things to New York City, which they said could clean 80,000 masks a day for basically for reuse. And the FDA decision that came down actually only let them do it in Columbus and only do 10,000 masks a day. And so their plans to try to deploy them in the places where they were needed the most was was foiled by that. And so DeWine, who's a very, uh, you know, I've used the phrase, I think I used the phrase mild mannered in my story. And that's one of my favorite descriptors of him was just furious. He, um, by his standards, he issued a statement just calling out the, the FDA as being reckless. He basically implied they're going to get people killed. Uh, he announced a press conference where previously he wasn't planning one. 
and he called the White House. Uh, apparently, he just called the switchboard and asked for the president, which I didn't know that worked. But yeah, but that it, was amazing. He <laughs> doesn't have a hotline. He yeah, he left a message and the president called him back. We should all try that. And, yeah. and this is all happening. There, there's a backdrop over the last week where you see some, and it's Democratic governors, and there's always politics at play in this stuff. But you know, you saw the governor of Illinois uh, after the. Uh, feds uh, announced new policies where people who were returning from Europe would be screened for extra coronavirus symptoms at the airport. And there are massive lines at the airport and people crammed into the, you know, everybody's been in the airport, um, crammed into the turnstiles, basically trying to get through. And uh, the governor of Illinois, uh, J.B. Pritzker, I think is his name, um, uh, called out the governor or called out Trump on Twitter and then got in kind of this fight with them and stuff like that. So um, things like that have been playing out. And Trump has been saying that well, if, if they're going to bash the response, then maybe we shouldn't call them and kind of implying that they shouldn't speak out. And so you Although saw my- yesterday, Andrew, he in his briefing yesterday, he claimed he never said that, which he did say it. It's on recordings across the country. But I think he knows how bad that looked. So he just announced I never said that. Right. And and so <laughs> we just we saw Mike DeWine, who's kind of always um He's a very diplomatic person. He's a savvy politician. And he was able to basically uh, make a big deal out of this, but then also uh, got the president on the phone quickly to the to his to President Trump's credit and praised him for just helping solve this problem. And so the whole thing played out by the end of the day, the FDA had expedited a full review and and they they granted approval for this thing. And it was just a very interesting way that I think it's almost um, it's a test case of how you can be a governor in a state you can call out something that you're angry about publicly and you can get results. And it just kind of, like I said, is interesting given just the kinds of things that have been going on over the last week or so. Yeah. And it, I was interested that by the end of the conversation DeWine was having, he actually said that Trump was great in, in his uh, dealings with the, the governor, which was nice because we've been wondering if there was going to be a showdown over a reopening business, although that seems to have gone away too. Right. And you can, you, there's also, there's um, throughout their comments yesterday, they were sharing some frustrations that they had about not having enough masks. You know, here and there, you've picked up on, you know, Amy Acton saying that, Ohio was the one of the last states to get tests and they've never really, you know, you can you can see these things as they say them. But kind of going back, you can just tell they're trying not to make too much noise because I don't think they want to upset things. So you, you can uh, you can pick up on it, but it's just not easy. And so in this case, you know, DeWine, instead of kind of being more subtle about it, basically uh, pull out his, his megaphone and started yelling. All right. This next one just keeps coming up over and over again. It's about testing. Why doesn't Ohio have adequate testing with full reporting of the negative tests? Chris, you keep hearing about people who were tested and can't get results a week later. Yeah. um, I mean, we had a we had a family member who um, when the clinic initially opened its line for people to come in and get testing, um, uh, he our family member, he went and waited in line for hours and you know, and then he went back home and didn't hear from them for a very, very long time. And when he initially called, he said, he said, he said they told him that his, his results were sent to a lab and they didn't, they weren't certain they would ever be able to let him know what his test results were. I mean, that's what they told him. And uh, eventually they finally contacted them and, and told them him and and his wife that, that neither of them are positive. So, you know, we, we dodged a bullet, but they were kind of in an at-risk category. And but it, it was it was very alarming and kind of distressing to hear that from somebody uh, close to us. 
So Jane, Amy Acton did something that was that was kind of a shock on Saturday when she publicly used the governor's briefing to beg the private labs to turn over their results. That's kind of screwed up. You would think that one, the state would have the power to compel that. Uh, and two, would have avenues other than standing in front of reporters and pleading with them to come forward with the results. What's going on there? Yeah, it was rather strange. I mean, they she basically said that that we're lagging. Ohio is lagging with this data like five days at the least behind. So that's pretty disconcerting. And um, she said they they need, you know, not just the positives, but but the number of tests and the, and the negatives as well. And, you know, having that data would allow the state to, to target its response better to, you know, get at this disease. So, uh, you know, I it's it's kind of a puzzler. It would also help. There's still some doubters out there that don't believe that this is as as dangerous a virus as, as it really is. And if you had the full universe of negative and positive tests, people can see it. But what is so difficult about this? I know that all of the governments, the federal, the states, did not jump on this in January when when it word of the pandemic, the possible pandemic started to spread. But what is so hard about getting the materials you need to do basic medical testing? I don't know if I, <laughs> I have an answer to that. I mean, it's, it's you know, we, we lagged, the, the federal response lagged, and, and therefore we don't, we don't have this stuff available. They keep saying they're working on it, but it's, it hasn't been forthcoming. It, in, it's sort of a non-expert answer to your question. I think there's a couple of things at play here. One, you know, I, I think what happened with DeWine over the weekend is illustrative of bureaucratic issues that exist in the federal government. And then you have the federal government having to communicate with 50 other state governments. And then you have state governments having to communicate with county governments. And then you have a private healthcare system where competition over, um, you know, collaboration is, is an issue. And so, you know, and, and then you have competing hospital systems looking to get the reagents and things that they need. I mean, it's, it's, it's what it's really exposing. And I don't think we'll have a full sort of idea of what it looks like until after the dust settles on this is, is just how antiquated our supply systems are when it comes to pulling the things together that we need in order to do the testing that is necessary for something like this. I mean, it's, I mean, the easy answer is that, you know, we knew something like this was going to happen at some point, um, and we were woefully underprepared for it. Well, Andrew, uh, DeWine actually addressed that a bit in the briefing yesterday, where he said one of the big lessons out of this crisis is that as a nation, we really have to invest more in public health. It was a pretty strong pronouncement. It'll be interesting to see how his future budgets might address that, no? Right. Yeah, he he has, I think he, he tries really hard when he can to take kind of politics or th this issue has become very politicized. And so, he, again, he was diplomatic about this and he basically said, you know, this isn't any one president, this isn't any one situation, but just for years we've underfunded public health uh, in our government. And so, I mean, I guess we will see, you talked about his budget, the state is talking about cutting its expenses by 20% uh, because of the uh, drop in tax revenues that's going to occur from this. So I guess it's easier said than done, but it's also, 
in in the aftermath of this huge crisis, it's not. Uh, it, it would be hard to imagine that there wouldn't be a more serious look taken at uh, improving these systems and, and better funding uh, coordination and responses and things like that. All right. This one has come up a few times, and I suspect it'll come up a lot this week, especially with parents getting to their wits end of having kids at home trying to get them educated. The governor's original order closing the schools lasted through this week, although he has hinted it would go longer. So will Ohio schools stay closed after this week? Jane. I would place bets on this. Yes, they will remain closed. I I can't imagine them even reopening this school year. I mean, feel free to disagree with me, but they the, the legislature passed that big bill, the state legislature waiving the testing requirements and as you said, the governor has pretty much signaled this that that they could remain closed for the rest of the school year. And some but, of the teachers have begun with online instruction and, and stuff like that and you wouldn't I mean, I just couldn't imagine that they would bother having the teachers go through all of that process if they're just saying like, oh, hey, by the way, you're back in school next week. So I, I think even just looking at that, that it's pretty obvious that, um, that it's just kind of a formality. They're going to close the schools for the rest of the year. But it's those systems that I think have people really asking the question, because trying to do that online, it's really hard. And teachers, are, I think, are struggling parents are struggling. And there's there's some great humor coming out of it. My wife saw something on on social media over the weekend where a woman was complaining about her parents because they're not taking care of their grandchildren, which was, you know, ha ha ha. They're not taking care of my kids. The, um, the, the, the schools seem like they're transitioning this week into much more of the online learning, uh, that teachers are quickly learning how to use zoom and other things, but you know, it's not easy to, to do that remotely. You don't have the the sensory experience. And I think that's why parents are so frustrated and wondering about this. No, nothing, huh? <laughs> <laughs> all right. We said it all, Chris. It, all right. it also, it does get to the point too, that maybe, you know, especially in urban or rural areas, there are kids who won't have enough, uh, they don't have the internet or they don't have uh, a broadband internet connection, or even with me, just, uh, you know, my wife and I, uh, we're dealing with the issues of me doing things like report, report, recording podcasts, and uh, she is in the mental health field, and she's doing telehealth sessions and stuff like that. So just even people with broadband uh, access, uh, it's it's taxing to try to do stuff like that. So there's just a lot of um, logistical problems with it. And uh, yeah, I mean, so just to speak to the frustration that that goes along with trying to set something up like this up on the fly. I mean, I'm, it's I, I do not envy teachers right now. All right. I'm throwing this one out there because it keeps getting discussed. It's the idea that of the economy versus people's people's lives. It's morphed a bit. The people who had been arguing for the health of the economy have been embarrassed by the attacks on their cavalier approach to human life. And they've changed their tune a bit, saying we should try to do both. But you really can't do both. So let's get into it. Should we be as focused on the health of the economy as we are on fighting the coronavirus? And I'll go to Chris. Um, I mean, I think you saw yesterday, I mean, even the the president sort of backing off of his Easter deadline. So, you know, I mean, it's it's weird to get credit for um, remedying a problem that you created, but, you know, <laughs> good for him. Um, but, you know, and, and we had a, a pretty high profile incident of this happening here in our own community. And and I think that you know, it's, it's, it's an interesting question. And I, and I, and again, it's, it's, it's one of those things where after, 
you know, not really sort of preparing for something like this and, and realizing that so many of our people, our workers, our, our neighbors and our friends are not just vulnerable to this from a, a health and wellness standpoint, but everybody is, is, you know, you're finding out really who in your life lives paycheck to paycheck. You're finding out whose job is actually valuable in our economy. You know, I mean, you, you know, you're looking at people treating people in, you know, people who work at grocery stores and Target and first responders like, you know, they're serving in the military. And, 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 and I think what's, what's really frustrating when you hear people say, you know, when you hear, you know, people on Wall Street and people, you know, billionaires and, and people talking about how we need to get people back to work, it's, it's sort of like, I think I told you this last week, Chris, I, th I think it's, I think we're really starting to see how people in those positions view the rest of humanity. You know, I mean, we're, a lot of us are just viewed as, you know, people who go to work on behalf of other people who make a lot of money and who aren't going to really go hungry when something like this happens. And well, so what, what bothered me about it though, is that when, the, when people were taking that conversation public, they were talking about the economy in the the abstract and and you know they were the the acceptable loss of life in the abstract and you know as you're pointing out this is all specific this is this is every you know it's one of those you really you want to talk about acceptable loss of life which of your relatives can you imagine dying because of this because lots of people will um, I was glad to see the conversation turn around. There are still some people sending us notes about it. They're trying to bring abortion into it. Why are we so concerned about the loss of life here when there's so much a bigger loss of life with abortion? And when I've responded to that, I've said, okay, you know, you, that, that, that's an interesting perspective to bring in. But the coronavirus is an immediate threat. We, over the next couple of months, it's going to play out. The abortion debate has been going on for, for decades and will go on for a long time. But if we decide right now that we're going to focus on the health of the economy at the expense of lives, people we know are going to die. I was glad to see it that, that, that fight go away because it, it really was kind of beneath us to be, to be talking that way. Well, uh, well, just like really quick, I mean, it's 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 worth noting that, I mean, this is going to be very devastating to the economy. And so it's it's something that we need to talk about, but we don't I, I, I don't think it needs to be framed as an either or. You know, I think that as a country, we should respond to this with the goal of making sure that we we try to save as many lives as humanly possible and not sort of nakedly say that these people are expendable and these people aren't. I, yeah, I, I really think... agree with Chris here. I'm sorry to interrupt, but um, either way, this virus is going to tank our economy. So why don't we save the maximum number of lives? Right. I mean, we're really starting to see evidence that these distancing measures are, are making a difference, not, not just in Ohio, but places like Washington State, where they had a big uptick. And now things seem to be, you know, all those measures they put in place actually they can see some proof that it's making a difference. And DeWine, I heard him on a national cable TV interview this morning uh, making that very point. He said, we are going to be in really bad shape if our healthcare system blows up. 
Okay, we have time for for one more topic, so let's uh, let's do this one. We finally got the Cuyahoga County map showing where the cases are on Friday. The county health board had steadfastly refused to provide it, claiming it would violate the privacy of people who had contracted the, the virus, which is a lot of hooey. At Cleveland.com, we were firing away at that ridiculous logic, and finally, under our blistering criticism, they did the right thing, and the story about it was read more than 330,000 times. People thank this repeatedly for forcing sunshine into the dark corners of the health board's data. And now people in all the other counties are asking us to go and do battle there because they want the map. Why do we think this was so hard? Why, wh- what is the real reason that, that we had a fight like dogs to get this data? I mean, when have we not had to fight like dogs to get data from this county? It's, it's, it's a, it is a perpetual problem with the governments of not just Cuyahoga County, but even with the city of Cleveland and some of our, some of our suburbs. And, and so when it came to this, I, I, I mean, I don't know a lot of people who were surprised. I mean, it doesn't make any, it doesn't make it any less frustrating. Um, but but I it just, wasn't, it, but this one wasn't the county government. This is a, an independent health board which I, you know, this is raising questions. Why do these things exist? I would make an argument that it ought to be a county department under the elected officials in the county. But as you note, <laughs> Cleveland has that and they're not mapping out at all in the neighborhoods where the cases are. The city has a health department in the county. We have this independent independent board. Ted Dianen made a really good argument last week when we were debating an editorial on this, that these health officials are the ones exhorting us to do everything possible to stop the spread of the disease, but then they're depriving us of knowing where the pockets are so that we can avoid them. I mean, it's, it's counterintuitive to what their purpose is. And is, and so Chris, you just think it's in their nature to be secretive. That's, that's what government around here does. That's part of it too. And I think there's also, I think there's a tendency to overreact to the idea of privacy and, and, you know, you hear, you know, it, I don't know how often the average American comes into contact with HIPAA or, you know, but it, 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 you know, I think a lot of health systems and a lot of governments sort of overuse HIPAA as a way to say, like, oh, we don't have to give this information to the public. And and I think they do it because they're scared that they might be violating people's privacy. But that gets into a completely different debate over, you know, does a, a deference to privacy deprive the rest of the public knowledge that it needs in order to stay safe and out of harm's way for something like this. So, well, you Mary, know, Kiel, Mary Kilpatrick wrote a story about the, the Spanish flu that was fascinating going back to what happened in 1918. And what people might not realize is back then, the newspapers published the names of the people that had it so that you could avoid them. So, so it's like, I'm not arguing for that. I, I'm just arguing to know to know where it is. Um, all right, we got to we're winding down. Anybody have any last thoughts about uh, about what they think is going to happen this week? Well, I'll be really curious to see this hospital plan that's due today, especially given our conversation about the insurance companies and so forth. And Chris, you earlier mentioned like the data, are they going to have, are they going to know about me if I come to a hospital that, you know, my insurance company uh, isn't, you know, dealing with, but so I, I would hope that some of that will be addressed by this plan. 
Yeah, and for me, an extension of that will be if the hospitals don't know, like if the state officials don't know where the cases are and what what positive and negative tests are, I'm sorry, what negative tests are being performed, how will they know where hospital beds are? Or how will they know where uh, protective equipment is or how will they know where ventilators are? And so I think that something that I'm interested to see is as we see these cases heat up, are the problems that we're seeing uh, in testing going to roll over into medical resources in a way that really tangibly affects people's care? Okay. That's it for our first This Week in the CLE Coronavirus Daily Edition. We're here to answer and discuss your questions. Send them to us through our text message accounts. With the coronavirus alerts, we send two to four messages a day with news about the virus, including the numbers. More than 11,000 people have subscribed. You can, too, by sending a text to 216-279-7592. Or you could go with the From the Newsroom text in which you get one or two messages a day about what we're talking about. Send a text to 216-868-4802. And hit the subscribe button wherever you get your podcast. You won't want to miss an episode of our new weekday edition of this podcast. We'll be back tomorrow with another discussion. 